Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and this podcast is with Bob Marson. Bob chats about flying the Harrier GR3, the Jaguar GR1, and also becoming a published author. He also gives a nice tour of the Harrier GR3 cockpit. So, if you like what we do here, please head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to become part of the team and help us out for as little as $1 per month. Also, sign up to our newsletter at our website, which is www.aircrewinterview.tv. Thank you and enjoy. interested in aviation? I wasn't uh, the classic youth interested in aeroplanes. Um, I stumbled into this job when I was out of work. So through school, uh, never in the ATC, university, I didn't join the University Air Squadron. Uh, It's after I've been working for three years in the motor industry that I eventually decided this would perhaps be more interesting. What was your first flying experience? Well, I'm told I went on a, a short pleasure flight out of Skegness in a de Havilland Rapide as a child, but I can't actually remember that. And then on to uh, trips on commercial airlines going on holiday. When did you join the RAF? I joined the Royal Air Force in 1972. When did you start your flying training? It was the end of 1972. I did the um, the short officer cadet training unit uh, course down at Henlow and uh, went straight on to flying training after that in the chipmunk at Church Fenton. So flying training, the first time I'd ever tried to fly anything was when I went on to the chipmunk at Church Fenton, did 30 hours of that and uh, as it was an interesting experience in terms of uh, later career progression and what I had to deal with in that during that 30 hours I had barely any idea of what on earth was going on um, struggled desperately and came out solidly at the bottom of the course there was a course of about 20 of us um, the two who came bottom of the course and were sent on to the next stage just as a bit of experiment as training risks we were the only two who ended up as single seat fast jet at the end of the whole, all the training so from Church Fenton it was on to Linton on Ouse on the Jet Provost where everything came together. I suddenly understood what it was all about. Did the Jet Provost Mark III. And at the end of that we were streamed onto different aircraft types. Those who were going on to the Fast Jet course went on to the JP-5. Uh, really un- enjoyed that, understood what was going on, got to grips with it and from there went on to Aria Valley. At Valley, uh, again, an interesting uh, aside as to what would happen later. I was tall, big sort of bloke. They got two kinds of aeroplanes at Valley. They got the Nat and they got the Hunter. So I was deemed too big for the Nat. Therefore, I would fly the Hunter. As opposed to when I went back later as an instructor, went along as a tall bloke. They got two types of aeroplane. They got the Hunter and they got the Hawk. I was a tall bloke, so they therefore said I was too tall to fly the Hunter, I'd fly the Hawk. Not quite logical, bearing in mind my earlier experience. Uh, Got through the valley course quite nicely, um, with some luck as well on the way, and went on from there down to Broadie in South Wales to do the tactical weapons course, again flying the Hunter. So with some Hunter experience behind me, uh, I was 
reasonably well able to do that. I'd already been selected for Harriers out of Valley. Um, so it was from the Hunter. I went on to the Harrier course, which began with a, a short helicopter conversion to get used to the idea of hovering. Then on to Wittering, on to 233 OCU. And that was in 1975 by this stage. So it's about three years through training. And did the six-month Harrier course on the GR3. And at the end of that, uh, I was posted to one squadron, staying at Wittering. What was the OCU Harrier training course like? It was a difficult course, very demanding. Um, As with most flying training courses, it got more and more difficult as time went on. But there was some front-loading in that, uh, unusually, in that the conversion to flying the aeroplane, taking off and landing, took 21 sorties, 7 dual, 14 solo, to get used to doing takeoffs and landing uh, anywhere within the range of 0 forward airspeed to 160 knots. So that's from a, a vertical takeoff and landing to a conventional landing. Those are the extremes. And we learned points in between those which were further complicated by the fact you could do a, a, a medium speed range landing but you could either do it by varying the amount of power you're putting out the back or by varying which direction you're pointing the power in so the two distinct types of slow landing that you would do according to the circumstances so it's quite a long conversion then we went on to do formation um basic air combat training and navigation learning how to use the kit such as it was then we swapped on we had two different squadrons there that was basic squadron then we went on to advanced squadron where we started to do uh, low level recce and attack sorties and range work culminating in a tactical phase where you go to a different airfield fly in a different low flying area and fly tactical formations with aggressors and prove that you could lead formations before you went on to the squadron. There were, there were seven of us on the course. Um, I was bumping along at number seven on the course in my progress um, before I got bumped up to number six because one of the guys who was doing better than me on the course resigned before we got to the end. He just decided it was all far too difficult. Went away, left the Air Force. Um, so there were six of us graduated. Um, that was myself as the only straight through uh, from the beginning ab initio pilot there were two graduates who'd done university air squadron there were two squadron leaders one who went on to become chief of the air staff the other one uh, went on to two-star air vice marshal and an american exchange officer who later died in a crash in an f4 so there were seven of us started six finished Bob chats about his first Harrier trip. First trip didn't end well. Uh, the first trip in a, in a, in a uh, two-seater uh, was on a Friday afternoon and late on a Friday afternoon. And as we got to about bar opening time, uh, my instructor did the final landing and he maintained that it was my fault having my feet on the brakes. But we landed on the far end of the airfield about two miles away from the bar and burst both the tyres as we landed. Um, I thought it was an aircraft fault, he thought it was my fault. So it was uh, 
interesting and uh, quite daunting to fly it for the first time. What was the first time like going solo? Um, it, it was it was a natural progression. You knew you were going to do this. We actually would sit in the in the single seater and do a, a start up, run through the checks, shut down, with the instructor plugged into a landline talking to us to make sure we could do that and shut it down again at the end before we ever flew it. And then depending on the weather, um, your first solo might be a different kind of thing. Um, if it was bad weather, you might end up doing the vertical part first. Um, ideally, what you would do is uh, short takeoff, slow landing, and that's what I did. Oddly enough, I don't remember that being as exciting as the first time. The one, the first solo that I remember is the most exciting was the Hunter F6 at Valley. So the the Valley F6s were stripped out. They had the big engine, lightweight, and they went very fast. And coming from the Jet Provost Mark V, went to the Hunter T7, which had the small engine, bigger airframe, more weight and was not that big a step from the Jet Provost, the F6 was amazing. That was a huge step, and I didn't have much flying experience. By the time I got to the Harrier, I had more flying experience, and I sort of took it in my stride. But it was exciting. Was it strange uh, coming from a conventional aircraft? No. As a straight-through student, um, you know what's what's coming. Um, it was more difficult for people who were long-time conventional fast jet pilots to go and do this. And you'd see that when you took a passenger in a T-Bird who is a conventional aircraft pilot. They're entirely happy with the acceleration. Love it. Great. The way it flies around, lovely handling, nimble, fast. They're quite happy with that. When you start to slow down for the landing, they're okay down to about 130 knots. Then they get worried. And when you get slower and slower, then they really worry about what the hell's going on. Um, but I'd say, as a straight-through student, no. Every time you learn something, you moved on to something new. There's always a new aeroplane, something different to learn. Uh, it depends on a lot of factors. Um, yes, another thing I would have brought along was a, a calculator to show you. It's a very complicated calculation according to the weight of the particular airframe the engine it's got in it, how good that performance is, the temperature and the pressure on the day, how much liquid you're carrying in terms of fuel and water. Um, you, you've probably got about 15 minutes of hovering time and you could run out of engine counts in shorter time than that if it, if it gets hot. So after the Harrier course, what happened next? After the Harry course at Wittering, I was, uh, there were two of us out of the six stayed at Wittering. The American exchange officer and I both went on to one squadron and stayed in the UK. The rest all went to Germany. Here we hear about his squadrons and tours. One squadron was uh, declared to NATO um, for mainly for the northern flank. Uh, it, it covered the southern flank of NATO and the northern flank. Uh, we exercised mostly in the north, but it was also uh, available for national contingencies, which came to dominate my first tour, uh, because not long after I joined, I did one detachment out to uh, Sardinia, and after that we were off to Belize. And I was on and off to Belize throughout my tour there. 
but with all the normal uh, one squadron jobs thrown in we did uh, Norway, Denmark Germany, France Belgium, Sardinia and backwards and forwards to Belize, Central America within that one of the, the, the facts about uh, a, a military flying career and indeed a civilian flying career to some extent is that uh, aircrew are perpetually tested every um, thing you do has to be tested from your your physical fitness your your well-being and your skills and to do that you need people who are qualified to teach and to examine and so i had to acquire qualifications during that first tour the major one i did was i became a fighter reconnaissance instructor um, i also became a combat survival and rescue officer and an electronic warfare officer I only did a short time as a Hawk uh, qualified flying instructor. I did six months there. Uh, again, there's this testing and progression business. You go from a, a B2 prog probationary QFI, a B1 is just a regular QFI. Then you go on to the A categories, uh, above average, where you can teach other people. I just got as far as B1. My last ride at Valley was getting my B1 qualification, uh, where the chief instructor knew I was leaving at this stage so I had to lead a formation with the chief instructor going and landing away at Valley teaching low-level navigation on the way across there and then fly back to Valley from Wittering flying a high-level sortie teaching high-level formation again with the chief instructor and that was me finished I went, then went back to the Harrier OCU and did the rest of my time as a flying instructor on the Harrier which was my longest Harrier tour I did four years of that with another two years of display flying to add to the display flying I'd done on uh, four squadron and all of this happened around the time of the Falklands War I'd just become uh, established back at the OCU at Wittering on 233 OCU when the war started uh, we became involved in teaching everybody who'd ever flown a Harrier to refresh get back into the cockpit uh, we did trials work for equipment for for the war and we were ready packing our bag, bags to go when the white flags went up at the end of my OCU tour I was promoted to squadron leader and went out to Germany again as a flight commander on three fighter squadron and uh, the the squadron was um, set up with three flights and each of these flights became a flying site so the, the, the eight pilots on that flight with six aircraft would go out to their own site and this squadron leader would run his own little airfield out in the countryside, which was a very, expense, uh, very exciting and very interesting job to do with that great responsibility. I actually only did a short part of my tour as a flight commander because we had one wing commander in charge, then four squadron leaders, three of whom were flight commanders, the other one was the exec executive officer, the second in command, and I moved into that role fairly early on. Yes, in, in Germany, we were very much part of NATO. We were fully assigned to NATO for all of our tasking. We, we had to do what the NATO commanders said rather than being in the RAF chain of command, and we were always practising our war role. Our war role was in our backyard. We were 60 miles from the inner German border, and we flew all the time, uh, low level when the weather permitted and the weather limits were um, quite low uh, 
We did a lot of low flying with aggressors, with aggressors from other squadrons, other aircraft types, uh, dropping weapons, practicing dropping weapons, and only when forced to by the weather did we then go and do medium level stuff, doing air combat training. Was a Harrier proving capable in its roles? Yeah, the, the the Harrier, we we knew our job, we knew the area in which to fly it very well because we practiced it a lot, all of the time, in all weathers. And uh, on the tactical evaluations from NATO, we consistently got the highest possible marks. Um, we already had the confidence of having uh, had Harriers involved in the Falklands and having been on the winning side down there. So, yes, we became very good at our job. But it was not without a price to pay. Um, during my tour on Three Squadron, I did uh, just under three years there. We had one period of six months in which we lost three aircraft, three pilots. Um, so you were always aware of your mortality and the dangers around and the families to be supported if things went wrong. Yeah, during my OCU tour, um, having finished my fourth year of display flying I was awarded the Air Force Cross at the end of my uh, three squadron tour um, despite all the accidents uh, but perhaps for the way we dealt with the accidents I was awarded the Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service in the Air but I stayed then at Goodersloe and carried on flying in a ground tour nominally as OC Harrier plans so it's my job to have the plans for all the war deployments and indeed for the um, three annual exercise deployments out into the field. Bob chats about his time on the Jaguar. Yeah, from from Goodersloe in Harrier Plans, I went on to Staff College, did the short Staff College course at Greenwich, um, which was very interesting with the tri-service aspect there. I was posted to the Ministry of Defence in operational requirements for the Harrier, um, but uh, I was expecting at that stage to get further promotion and uh, I got a phone call to say are you ready to go back flying but yes I am it's only been six months I've been out of the cockpit but I'm I'm ready to go back well it's um, promotion entailed in this thank you very much I'd like to go as a wing commander uh, single seat ground attack yes that's what I expected couldn't see anything different and it's got two engines ah now there you've got me so off I went to the Jaguar and had a great time. Um, the, the system said, when I first said I'll go back flying, the first response was, well, you're late for your refresher course. Which refresher course is that? That's the Hawk refresher course. No, no, I've just got out of a Harrier cockpit. I don't need a Hawk refresher, thank you. OK, then, you've got a couple of weeks before you start your next refresher course. Another refresher course? Yes, on the Jaguar. Well, refresher sort of implies you've done it before. Yes, I know, but we've, we've got this booked. So you go and do the short Jaguar course. Off to Scotland, middle of winter, did that. Absorbed several years of pent-up banter because I was the first person for some years to cross over from Harrier to Jaguar. Um, but got treated very well by the Jaguar force. Treated as one of the boys. Um, just after I'd arrived, uh, I went off on a flag exercise with them. Uh, and got involved in everything they did. Um, I learned very early on, in fact, my second sortie um, at Coltishaw in the Jaguar, how t 
Toffin aeroplane it is. Uh, it, its performance was limited by the power of its engines, but the airframe was very tough. On my first single-seater sortie, I took a 41-squadron air, aircraft with the huge Jaguar reconnaissance pod we had at, had at the time and full of fuel with big drop tanks. And I got halfway across England and met a huge flock of birds, which did a lot of damage to the aeroplane. My immediate reaction was, well, I I know my way around here. I will go and land at Shawbury, head to Shawbury, and then thought, hmm, now, how much runway have they got at Shawbury? I know in a Harrier this wouldn't be a problem. In a Jaguar, I'm not sure. And what's more, I don't know how much this Jaguar weighs. I know it's got a recce pod on it. I can see that the front half of that external fuel tank's gone, so I don't know how much fuel is left in the aeroplane. But it's got a drag chute, and I'm just going to hope it works. Well, it did, and I got out of this thing, and it was an absolute wreck. There were holes all over the aeroplane. The engines were still running, but with the damage it had gone on the airframe, I just called them up at Coltishall and said, look, can I have a lift back, please? This one's going nowhere, expecting it to be there for some months. And lo and behold, the engineers went across, took some panels on, patched over a couple of holes, and it was flown back a couple of days later. So a tough old aeroplane in the Harrier, where most of the outer skin is is stressed, uh, takes load. If you made holes like that, it would have been a very long job. So the, the Jaguar impressed me in some ways, but it needed more power. How did it differ from the Harrier? Well, I learned a lesson on that again when I was on the uh, OCU doing my short refresher course. Um, I I came to realise the difference. I thought everything was the same. It appeared to be just the same, flew just the same conventionally. It was in the same area, very similar sort of wing. Um, and I flew on a, a 4v1 sap and our foreship got bounced and I did what I'd been doing for years. I turned and tried to fight and to kill the bounce. And it was only after my radio went a bit quiet, I realised that everybody else had just gone lower and faster and gone in a straight line away from there. And I was all on my own. Um, With a Jaguar, you really don't want to start turning and burning because you'll just use up all your fuel and you have to go home. Um, With the Harrier, you bleed off energy. With the, the small swept wing turning, you bleed off energy. You just put it back with the Pegasus. With two doors, you have to use the reheat, and that really is a big penalty. Use up a lot of fuel. So I learned that lesson early on. But there were lots of similarities between the two aeroplanes. Overall, did you enjoy uh, flying the Jaguar? I did. I did. I had great fun there. Uh, they were very good to me. Um, the, the sense of humour of the Jaguar force was very similar to the Harrier force. Uh, I suppose my final sortie there typified that. Uh, I ended up going on my own, uh, came back to the airfield, said hello to, because I was OC Opswing, air traffic worked for me, so I did a little uh, farewell to them as I went past the tower. Uh, when I, I landed, taxied in, the station commander was there, he'd been watching, didn't realise. And his words were to me were, well, of course, Bob, you're now grounded. OK, well, that's fine, I was finished anyway. At the end of my Jaguar tour, uh, I, I again had the amusing conversation with the um, postings officer, who fortunately was somebody I knew. I knew what he was on about. Um, 
said uh, I'd been posted away from uh, from Germany. I bought a house where I could settle my wife and children and get the kids in school. Uh, and then the unexpected posting to Jaguar separated me from my house, which didn't seem a great idea at the time. But uh, we talked around that one, came to the end of my Jaguar tour and talked to this guy again and said, look, what have you got for me? And he said, well, I found your job near to your house. Um, it's nominally a ground tour, but it's as much flying as you want. But it is in the training world. It's not good career progression, but it's something you might be interested in. Um, how do you feel about that? I thought about it, considered what the job was, said I would do it, rang him back, said, yes, I will do that. And uh, the conversation ended with a, right, you can go there as soon as you get back from Sarajevo, click. Oh, here we go. So having spent my last of my Jaguar days flying around over Bosnia, looking at the wreckage below and thinking, I'm glad I'm not down there. That's where I went next and did a tour as working for the United Nations, wearing blueberry and working as the commander of the United Nations Air Operations Coordination Centre in, in the city of Sarajevo. And from there, then I went into the training job with a brief detour on the way because I got recalled to do another board of inquiry, this one into a, a Jaguar crash, a fatal Jaguar crash. So I did that board of inquiry, then went into the light aircraft world. Bob chats about his time on the Harrier. Most of my time was spent in this, the Harrier GR3. Uh, I flew this, I, nominally they were 1As I think that I, I first flew, but they were pretty well the GR3. Um, I flew more than 2,000 hours in the Harrier GR3, uh, which in sorties that were pretty well all less than an hour, that's a lot of sorties, I flew over a thousand hours in the two-seat version of this, the T4. Uh, I also flew. I flew the Sea Harrier once. Chap came to Wittering for a meeting. Um, his aeroplane was going to be on the ground for a couple of hours, so I borrowed that. Had a go in that. Uh, that was the FRS1. Uh, I also flew the GR5 through uh, a little skullduggery that went on. Managed to get myself a. A quick conversion onto that, uh, and that was it. I, I, I never got to fly the seven or nine. I flew in the T10. There aren't that many systems in the aircraft. It, it, it's a it's a complicated looking cockpit, um, but the kit's not very sophisticated. So it was mostly basic methods we were using. Um, so no, not not a big systems load as compared to the Mark II Harrier which was a very different beast. Could you tell us in more detail about the hover function of the aircraft? Yeah, the, um, the main difference you'll, you'll see in the cockpit is the throttle quadrant. You've got two levers. Um, standard pilot is equipped with one left hand. That left hand has got to control two levers, which do similar but uh, different things. And you've got a, a throttle to increase and decrease the power, and then you've got a nozzle lever which controls where your power is pointed. So that makes it quite different. In terms of hovering the aeroplane, it's actually more stable in the hover than the average helicopter is. It will hover quite well. But as you can see from this cockpit, the view immediately downwards is limited. 
you can't see very close into the aeroplane, so you have to fly by reference to further out points. As a weapons platform, what were its strengths and weaknesses? It was a very good um, low-level aircraft. The, the weapons we had during most of the time I was flying it were dumb weapons, which work accurately if you're flying very low um, and you can get close to the target. And it was very good at doing that. It was a nice, steady platform for flying at low level. Uh, our standard load was the BL-755 cluster bomb was mostly used, and then we used dumb 1,000-pound high-explosive bombs. We could carry snare rockets. We had two 30mm cannons, uh, Aiden cannons. Uh, so we had a fair variety, but they were not smart weapons. What was a standard configuration? Standard configuration most of the time was carrying these BL-755s. They, they were a 600-pound cluster bomb, each of which uh, carried 147 subunits, these bomblets, um, which were designed to pierce armour. They had a shape charge and a fragmentation casing, so they could pierce armour and they could take out personnel. Those were used most. Um, Depending on the target, sometimes it would be preferable to use a thousand-pound bomb. It, that would give you a bigger bang. But uh, most of the time, the cluster bomb was the thing we would want to use. It it surprised people. You could um, people who were used to flying against conventional aeroplanes weren't used to what this aeroplane could do. If you didn't tell them the limitations, they couldn't exploit them. Um, but seeing Richard's got a, a Harrier here, uh, sorry, he's got a, a Lightning here as well as the Harrier. Um, I'll give you an, an example of, I went to fight against uh, Lightnings at Bimbrook. It was their weapons instructor's course. I took a, a GR3 along to fight against them, and I should have cottoned on from the briefing that they were trying to use their strengths against my weaknesses, and they told me to take off from Bimbrook, go on out over the North Sea, call when I was ready, then the first lightning would come up and fight me. Then when that was finished, a second lightning would come up and fight me. And then we'd all go home. Well, this obviously meant they weren't carrying very much fuel. They were lightweight and they were high speed. And the first one came in and gave me a good doing over. Shot me convincingly. Second one, I got some idea of what was going on. So I jettisoned some fuel, made my aircraft lighter. Managed to get him in and uh, sucker him into a low speed fight. We got into a low-speed scissors uh, on one cross. I was getting the better of him. And as we crossed, I saw his nose go round. I thought, smart man, he's going to get the hell out of here, run away. I reversed, turned after him and saw, no, he was now spinning. So the lightning's spinning down. Well, I've got an aeroplane that can go straight down, but I can control the speed. So I put it in the braking stop, get some film of him going down put the gun sight on him just to convince I've got a kill and then thought oh hang on he's still spinning and he's going down he eventually stopped and then went into a spin the other way stopped again somewhat lower and the sheepish voice said I'm going home now and that was the last I saw of him so we talked about it on the phone afterwards after I'd on my depleted fuel I did another 40 minutes of low level and went back home what was the range and speed of the GR3? 
you would normally fly around at 420 knots. That was a peacetime uh, constraint to minimise noise complaints, but also because with the, the little wing, if you with a single engine, if you lost the engine, you needed some speed for energy to stay in the air while you did something about it. So 420 was the minimum we wanted to fly. We would fly in the speed range 420 to 540. 540, you'd probably go out for delivering weapons. And the, the range, uh, you've got about up to an hour's worth of fuel on internal fuel with small drop tanks. So at you know, 400 odd knots, yeah, that's, that's the range you've got. Do you have any memorable stories in the Harrier? Many, many stories. Give us one. Some of which can be told. Um, the, the lightning was one. Um, the, the Belize business, which, um, as I say, dominated my first tour. I did so many um, trips out there. When I just joined the squadron, I was taken out there as an operations officer. wasn't allowed to fly. Uh, for the first couple of weeks until things calmed down. Second time, I took a jet down there, leading a pair, second pair down. We air-to-air refuelled all the way down there. Uh, during the second leg, the seven-hour leg from um, Canada to Belize, avoiding American airspace because the Americans were on the other side, everybody changed sides during that. Apparently, there were negotiations going on um, our man at the negotiations said to the Guatemalan man at the negotiations, look, if you don't stop making all these silly noises, we're going to reinforce. In fact, we have now. At that point, the Guatemalans got up and phoned home and said, get ready, invade before the rest of them get there. The American advisors were thrown off their airfields. They telephoned us, told us what was going on. The Cubans overheard what was going on. And the Cubans changed sides, and where we'd, we'd been going through Cuban airspace, the Cubans said, no, you can't come this way. So it all got a bit difficult. We got down there, got off the coast, and it all appeared to be going quite nasty. We were told to hold off, do not land yet. We eventually got clearance to land, uh, and I'm, I'm dressed in complete immersion suit, ready for the cold water off Goose Bay, where we, we took off from. I'm now in the tropics. 16 degrees north, very hot, very humid. I have to get this lot off. And the boss greets me and said, the wing commander says, um, OK, it, it, it's it's just a bit of a scare. There's, there's nothing much going on. Just go and get yourself rehydrated, have a beer, go to bed, come to work, 9 o'clock in the morning, we'll see what's going on. So I went and rehydrated, went to bed, 3 o'clock in the morning. The wing commander's shaking me by the shoulder, going, get up, get up, they're coming. And... As dawn broke, we got airborne after a few strange sights. I remember sitting there with, at this stage, all I got was the high-explosive 30mm ammunition in the guns. Nothing else was ready at that stage. We were going to take off with that, go and deter whatever invaders we could, come back land and get rearmed with Sneb. And in the darkness, I could see men walking in front of me with armfuls of HE Sneb in front of my loaded guns to go and load the pods, but this is Belize. Our squadron regiment officer was prowling around on the outskirts, 
with a general purpose machine gun and as much ammunition as he could carry looking for something to shoot. We got airborne in the dark, didn't see anything happen, landed um, expecting to then be armed with SNEB and go off to shoot up the enemy where they'd landed and we knew they'd have to land at a closer airfield because they didn't have the range to get back to their own airfield but they didn't come so we all went back to bed again and had another sleep so that was just one of the many strange stories of my Harrier career. The um, tricky V-style incidents would tend to be very serious there's, there's just one part of the Harrier flight envelope between 30 and 90 knots where you can get into awful lot of trouble um, if you get it wrong with your combination of speed, angle of attack and side slip and that's why we have the vane on the front so you can see which direction the airflow is coming from uh, if you start going sideways within that range the aircraft can roll so rapidly that the, the control you've got available is not enough to stop it and it will roll inverted um, I've seen other people get bitten by that um, and crash the aeroplane to different extents. Um, I fortunately never had that happen to me. So no, all of my, my V-Stol was relatively trouble-free. Here we get a run-through of the Harrier GR3 cockpit. So the thing that makes it unique in, in the Harrier is the throttle quadrant, where you've got the throttle, conventional throttle, but also you've got a nozzle lever alongside. And with those, both work in the sense that push forward, go faster, pull back, go slower. But you've got to make sure you're moving the right one at the right time. That and the Pegasus together is what makes it area. In terms of equipment in the cockpit, uh, you've got the, the Mark 9 Martin Baker ejection seat, a zero zero seat, which is essential for V-style type flying, because if the engine quits at low speed, you've got to get out of there. Um, what made it the GR3 as opposed to the GR1 is that you've got the, the inertial navigation and attack system, a Ferranti system, which gives you a moving map and does the calculation for the weapon aiming. Weapon aiming is via a head-up display. Uh, you've got a representation of the main flight instruments up in the head-up display as well, so you could fly instruments on there and you always flew angle of attack rather than airspeed. You've got conventional flight instruments on the left, you've got the engine instruments on the right, you've got the weapons control on the lower left, you've got a, a radar warning receiver indicators up at the top here. This quaint little device here is the standby sight, so if your head-up display fails, your inertial navigation fails, you've got a little black box there, which has got a luminous line and an adjustable dot in it, where you can look into that with your left eye, so you don't see anything out the front, look at your right eye at the target, and superimpose the two images, you can aim weapons that way. You've got the avionics down the right-hand side, uh, where you've got a, a little tape recorder there, which was used for recording facts and reconnaissance. You've got the IFF controller down there, you've got the TACM controller down on this side as well. And then all the ancillary switches and gauges tucked away down the side here. You see, it's a, it's a snug cockpit. There's not much room in here, and everything is tucked in all around you. You've got a central warning panel down on the right to tell you that things are going wrong. 
orange warnings are just warnings red warnings there's something terribly wrong with the red warning you get a flashing light as well if it's a fire this light comes on too you've got fuel level warning lights up here too to catch your attention laser switches here recce panel controls down on the left but of course the good old stopwatch when all else fails Could you tell us a bit about the controller the, the stick yeah the control column um, works as a conventional control column so you've got pitch control roll control in there but as well as controlling the aerodynamic services it is also controlling the uh, thrust puffer jets on the extremities of the aeroplane on the top here you've got a, a two-axis trim switch you've got the um, bomb release button under uh, guard there you've also got the gun firing trigger which you lower by pushing that catch forward then you've got the trigger drops down in front there and you stow it away when you finish with it if we can get it back on Richard's aeroplane And you've also got a camera button on the front. You've got the nose wheel steering engage switch on the front of the stick. Fairly crude compared to the second generation Harrier, but still a fair few things to play around with there. Bob chats about being a published author and talking about his books, Harrier Boys, Volume 1 and 2. Yes, it's much like I was telling you I get roped into various things um, because I, I foolishly nearly volunteer for things. Uh, when I heard they were looking for somebody to write the book for the uh, the boys series, the Harrier Boys one, I wrote to the publisher suggesting names they might try, people who do a good job. Uh, and at the end of the process, they ended up on asking me to do it. So the last couple of years, I've been quite busy with producing these two books, the second of which is published uh, later this month and is literally hot off the press. The first one is talking about more of my era and this is taking it up to the, the end of the UK Harrier experience. So where can we find your work? You can find it online at uh, booksellers. Uh, you can get it at WH Smith's, various high street stores. And finally, we get to hear a personal side to Bob. Bob, do you have a favourite aircraft? The Harrier. <laughs> Anything else but the Harrier? What can I say? <laughs> no. The, the, I, the, my experience is mainly on the Harrier. Uh, I loved it. The, the new shiny jets, there are some wonderful things out there, but I don't really know what they're like. The F-35, and I'd love to see what it can do. Do you ever go to air shows? Very occasionally, not much. What was your last one? And the last one I went to was uh, Flying Legends at Duxford last year. Do you have any hobbies? Uh, yes, various. I, I do DIY stuff around the, the house. I, I've got some part-time jobs I do. I'm a, a simulated patient for the Nottingham Teaching Hospitals. Uh, that's where I'll be tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm uh, being crushed by a forklift truck. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And don't forget you can watch and listen to all of our other interviews at aircrewinterview.tv. 
Also, please sign up to our newsletter for exclusive content, prizes, upcoming interviews and much more. And of course, go over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us grow and to become part of the team for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.